Good morning, Redemption. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Seshem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill county on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray together, church. Father, we come to you now. I want to ask for your help this morning. I want to ask that you would use these verses to open our eyes to the extent of your faithfulness. Help us to see that you are a promise-making God who can be trusted, God. And we pray that as we do, as we look to this story, to this text, that you would change us, that you would shape us into the image of Christ, God, and that in all things you'd be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a promise is a very powerful thing. If you just think about some of the important promises we make in our life, Michelle, in marriage, you're getting ready to promise to link your life to another person, to be faithful to him. Uh, but even just in business, all the time, we, we make promises to pay this person this amount of money for this reason and this, this amount of time. Or even with our kids, we promise that we're going to play with them in just in five minutes, right? I promise. And when we make a promise, we really are putting our integrity and it often even relationships on the line. If we commit to making something happen and then we do not deliver, then without question, trust is going to be broken. The relationship is going to be tarnished. But if we make that commitment and then we do deliver, of course, that relationship is going to be strengthened and, and grown. In one sense, a promise is a very simple thing. It's just a collection of words that basically gets around to saying, I will do so-and-so. But it's also a very powerful thing. And this is all the more true when the promise is coming from the God of all creation. When this God makes a promise, it can change the very course of history. Now, back in 2020, we did a series through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, and today, we're going to begin a new series starting right here in chapter 12. We're pretty much picking up where we left off after that first Genesis series. And this series here is going to follow the life of Abraham. And this is what the next 
13 or so chapters of Genesis will cover. But before we get to our passage today, I think it's going to be really helpful for us to try and recount some of the main themes of those first 11 chapters of the book so that we can remember where we came from before we got to this passage here. So right away, in the beginning, right, of Genesis 1, we we read that God created all things by the power of his word. Each day of creation, he gets around to speaking something new into existence, and then he says in one way or another, it is good. It is good. It is good. Then at the very end of the process, he creates the very first man and woman. It says, in his image, which basically just means we're a visible representation. We are an image of this invisible God, and he says, after that, he zooms out, he looks at the whole thing, he says, it's very good. We exist because this creating God, he is, he's invisible. You can't see him, but he's created us so that we can make him known in his creation and so that we can rule over all of his creation to have dominion. That becomes really clear next based on what God does next in this story. He takes these first two people and he blesses them, which is going to become very important in our passage, God's blessing. Then he gives them a mission along with this blessing, namely to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. Again, that theme of blessing is going to become very important, but I want us to see the connection between them. So far in Genesis 1 to 11, anytime God blesses someone, What he's doing is he's showing them his divine favor by helping them to carry out that mission that he gave to the first man and the first woman. In particular, he's blessing them by helping them to be fruitful and to multiply so that they can fill and subdue his earth, his creation. Now, when someone gives you a mission, it's really generally pretty easy to see what it is they're after. All you have to do is sort of play the mission out to its natural conclusion and ask yourself, well, what happens at the end of it. So if you come to my house and I say, here, take this snowblower, pull the cord, and then push it over my driveway until you can see the concrete, right? That's because I'm giving you that mission because I want to use my driveway uh, without the snow on it, right? Uh, the, the vision I'm after is a snowless driveway. You can tell. I don't have to tell you that. You can tell. And in the same way, if Adam and Eve just did this, If they just took God at his word and they had children who had children who had children who worked together to subdue the earth, what would be the result? It would be a world full of very good human families that all worked together to rule God's creation to God's glory. That is what God has always been after. That is what I like to call God's grand vision. But of course, we know in chapter three, the first man and first woman rebel against God. Sin enters the world. Everything goes totally haywire. But something really interesting happens in the story is that people do multiply. They do have children and they do start to fill the earth. But as they do, sin begins to multiply. And sin begins to fill the earth as well. Very quickly, this entire project turns into some chaotic distorted version of God's grand vision. But along the way, God raises up one man from generation to generation, basically a chosen line, and in some way he uses that each of these men to work toward his plan of redemption. 
For instance, the first two men, Cain and Abel, Cain kills his brother Abel, and then God raises up another in this line named Seth. And then Seth's line leads us all the way to Noah. And we know the story of Noah. The world is so sinful, God wipes out all human life on earth, but he saves this one man and his family. What I want you to do is if you have your Bible open to Genesis, just turn back with me real quick to chapter 9. And if you look at verse 1 in chapter 9, what we're going to see here is the very first thing that God does as soon as Noah and his family get off this ark. Here's what he says, chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, what? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So as soon as this flood subsides, we almost get the sense, okay, God's starting over here. We get the sense he's preserved this chosen line of the only ones he's preserved. He's blessed them. He's kind of hitting reset. Maybe, maybe Noah is the one that God will use to restore this promise. But then <laughs> Noah turns out to be just as sinful as anybody else in this story. In fact, as this chosen family even continues to multiply, the chaos of sin continues to multiply with it again. In fact, after this, we read the entire human race banded together to try and oppose God, to try and build a tower so that they could ascend up to heaven on their own. But God scatters them into different nations, these families, into different nations, and he confuses all their languages. Now, think about this. By the end of chapter 11, we have the world as we know it today. It is a world full of sinful people scattered into raging nations that are constantly warring against one another. And what I want you to notice, that's exactly the opposite of God's grand vision, is it not? He wanted an earth filled with very good families that would work together to glorify his name on the earth. By the end of chapter 11, what we had was a world full of sinful families that were all trying to make a name for themselves, which brings us here to chapter 12. In many ways, this entire section of Genesis that we will cover in this series, but in particular, these nine verses, our passage today, sets the stage for the rest of the entire story of the Bible. These nine verses are some of the most important verses for making sense of the Bible story. I've heard it said by a, a, a professor in seminary that if the Bible story was like a mountain range from beginning to end and the peaks of the mountain were the high points of the story, this would be one of the highest summits in the entire mountain range. We'd be toward the beginning of the mountain range. This would be one of the highest summits. In our passage today, God finally reveals his plan to redeem this world full of sinful families and raging nations. And he does that by making a promise to this one man named Abram. So with that said, let's take a look now. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 to 9. And in particular, we're going to focus on two things. We're going to focus on God's promise and on Abram's response. It's pretty simple. First, uh, at the very, very end of chapter 11, so the very last thing we read before we get to this passage, there's a genealogy, it's a family tree, and you could tell the whole point of it is to lead us up to this one man, Abram. The whole point of it is basically to suggest, all right, here's the next one in the chosen line. And at first, we don't really know much 
about Abram, but we do learn that his wife's name is Sarai. And if you look with me at chapter 11, verse 30, one of the last verses in chapter 11, it says, Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now again, if you've been tracing the story up to this point, it's not hard to tell. That's a huge, huge problem. Because here, this chosen line that God's supposedly going to use, is, is, it has a dead end in it. We're supposed to read that and think, okay, well, it's over. It failed. Uh, this promised offspring is not going to come. Sin is going to prevail. And it is against that backdrop right there that God makes this promise to Abram. Now, the promise, you'll notice, is kind of wrapped in a calling. God calls Abram to go to a land that he will show him and to be a blessing. But as Abram follows this calling, you want you to notice uh, God is going to lavish his blessing on Abram. This whole promise is chock full. It's bursting at the seams with God's blessing. He's going to bless those who bless, and he's going to make them a blessing. It's, it's just filled with blessing. The whole thing is about God showing favor to Abram so that this chosen line will flourish. In fact, God promises to make him a great nation, to bless him, and to make his name great. Now remember, again, we just read about the whole world coming together to make a name for themselves. And so God's solution to that whole wicked world is to uh, raise this family up and to make their name great for them. But notice this promise is not just for Abram and his family. Uh, they are not the only ones who benefit from it. The entire point of this nation, the reason God's going to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him is so that in him, in Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is, again, those sinful families in open rebellion against God, those families, the ones that he scattered into these raging nations with all those different languages, the ones who have filled his creation with chaos and sin. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, God's plan to redeem all of those families is to raise up this family into a great nation. But you have to admit, it doesn't even seem like a particularly good plan at this point in the story. Uh, in fact, it seems like all the odds are stacked against this plan. The entire world is already filled with sinful, raging nations. God decides to start over with just one guy and his, and his wife. Meanwhile, he and his wife are already very old, and she is barren. She can't have any children and oh, by the way, uh, the land that they were supposed to uh, be promised from God was already occupied by an established nation. Look at verse 6. Abraham passes through this promised land, and it says, At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. How's this going to work? Uh, this is what we're supposed to see and read as, as we read this. We're supposed to be overwhelmed by all of the obstacles that stand in God's way. Just imagine everything that God would have to do in order to make this promise come to fruition. And yet, in verses 4 to 9, we see Abram's response to God. And without question, what we are supposed to see and notice in his response is Abram's incredible faith. In this God. Verse 4 says right away, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. In other words, even in spite of all these obstacles, he obeyed God's call. 
He left everything he knew, everything that was familiar to him, his country, his kindred, his father's house, and with his wife, his nephew, and some possessions, he began this quest to the promised land. And when they arrive in the promised land to a place called Shechem, it says God appeared to Abram, and in no uncertain terms, he just confirms this promise. He makes it crystal clear. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And in response, from this point on, the rest of this story is all about Abram's worship. First, right away, he, he builds an altar there in Shechem where God appeared to him to sort of commemorate this incredible experience of, of hearing from God, this great confirmation. Then as they continue to journey on somewhere between Bethel and Ai, he builds another altar and there it says he called upon the name of the Lord. This is Abraham's response. Even when he had, all he had rather, was a wife, a nephew, some possessions, and God's promise. Even though countless obstacles stood between him and the call that God had placed on his life, even then he did not grumble or doubt this God. He took this God at his word and he praised him. He called upon his name. Church, this story, these nine verses really do set the stage for the rest of the entire Bible. From this point on, the entire Old Testament and even the New Testament are all about God making good on this one promise. But here we need to pause a little bit and just consider what it is we've just read and who it was intended for, okay? So tradition holds and the Bible confirms that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were all written by Moses. Now there were almost certainly other editors and compilers who contributed to the book along the way, but Moses is its primary author. And this is really important because we know Moses was born long, long after Abram ever lived. So I want to make sure you catch this. This story here was already ancient history, even when it was first written. Later in the Pentateuch, we will learn that Moses was born in Egypt, much later when the Israelites are a people enslaved there in Egypt. In fact, God will use Moses to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. Then we learn that Moses will go on to die right when these descendants of Abraham are just on the precipice of the promised land, getting ready to make this thing official. And so what, which means, chances are, this was most likely written during their years between the Exodus and their entrance into the promised land, during their years in the wilderness, which really helps us understand why Moses wrote this and the purpose I think it's meant to serve. The Israelites were supposed to read this and they were supposed to think, wow. Listen, we may be in the wilderness still. Life may be really hard for us right now. But just consider everything God has had to do to bring us here. As we read these stories, we should be thinking of the Hebrew people probably in the wilderness on their way to that promised land so that this promise after many, many centuries could finally be brought to fruition. Now just consider the irony of that in all these things that we're reading. Everything we read here is basically a precursor. It's a preview of the entire story of the Old Testament which will come after it. Later in the Pentateuch, God is going to establish Abram's descendants in this land. 
He is going to overthrow these Canaanites. He is going to make their name great. This land will be Come, the nation of Israel, it will have its capital city in that great city of Jerusalem. All of the cities that are mentioned in this story even will come back into the story along the way. In fact, in Joshua 24, right before they enter and conquer the promised land, they renew God's covenant. And guess where they do it? In Shechem. All of these cities, all of these regions will be coming back into the story as God makes this promise happen. But for now, for now, it belongs to an entirely different nation. And Abram, the father of this great future nation, is just passing through with his nephew and his wife. Just imagine what that would mean to you as a Hebrew in the wilderness. As you looked around and you saw all of your descendants who were also descended from Abram, as you longed still for this promise to be fulfilled, to enter the promised land, as you were tempted over and over to despair, to give up and just to go back to Egypt, to live a status quo sort of life, and then you read this. Church, these verses are claiming loud and clear that this God has always been faithful to his promise, and he always will be. He always will be. It may seem like the odds are stacked against him. We may not be able to see how this whole thing is going to add up and work. Frankly, it may seem from time to time like it won't. But time will tell as we are going to see in this series, this promise will happen. Not because of us. Frankly, often in spite of us. But this God will have his way. He will bless all the families of the earth just as he promised here to Abram. But as Christians, the truth is we have even greater reasons to cling to God's promise today because we can look back on far more of his redemptive plan and redemptive history. <coughs> Excuse me. As Christians, we know that if you follow this chosen line all the way to the New Testament, it will lead us to no one other than Christ himself. And as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and if you are Christ, he says, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That is this Promise right here, church, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. God has raised up this family into a great nation so that through that nation he could send us his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate promised seed of Abraham. He is the hope and the point of the entire story of Scripture. He has always been God's plan to bless all the families of the earth, and we who believe in him by faith are included in this promise as heirs of all creation. We are on our way to a promised land called the new heavens and the new earth where we will live in resurrected perfection with him, where we will live out his grand vision, free of all sin and death forever and ever. Amen. But much like Israel wandering in that wilderness, this doesn't always feel true. 
does it? Too often it feels like the chaos of sin is, is winning the day in God's creation. It feels, for instance, like the, the disappointment of this pandemic will never end. It, it may feel like our work life or our family life are just, just even riddled with conflict or challenges and there's really no lasting eternal significance to it all. Like the odds are constantly stacked against us and this promise is really just more of a pipe dream, which is why we need this passage today, church. Like so many of God's people throughout many, many generations, we need to stop and we need to consider all that God has done to keep this promise through the ages. And as we do, here are three things that we can remember and we can live by, all rooted right here in these nine verses. The first thing is this. This God can still be trusted. This God can still be trusted. Now, in a way, it's, it's kind of tempting to almost trivialize this promise by making it all about God's promise to us as individuals, as if we all have different promises from God and, and whatever it is we feel God calling us to do, well, then we just need to trust that in the end God will do that. He'll just sort of make all that happen. That would be, I think, the wrong approach to applying this passage. I want you to notice this story is not about God fulfilling all of Abram's life goals. In fact, this is about God rearranging and making all kinds of demands on Abram's life so that his life can be used for God's ultimate purpose. And so the point here is not, listen, just trust that God wants to help us all accomplish our life goals. No, the point is God has a life goal. He is intent to redeem and to bless all the families of, his, of, of the world through his covenant people, and he is calling us to reorder our lives in many ways by laying our goals aside and devoting everything we have to his ultimate purposes, to, to his grand vision even. But here's the thing. If we do that, it is often going to feel like it does not make any sense. This is gonna take faith. But the truth is, we're gonna see in this series, God often does it this way on purpose. He sets it up this way so that when he does come through in the end against all odds, we will not be able to miss that, yes, he was worth trusting back then when we weren't quite sure. And therefore, yes, he is still worth trusting even today. It may take much, much longer than we ever imagined. It may be much, much harder than we ever hoped or thought. It may involve leaving what is comfortable and going somewhere totally uncertain. When we get there, we may even face one obstacle after another, but when we zoom out, we slow down, and we consider the faithfulness of this God throughout the ages, it will be much, much easier for us to see that he is still worth trusting, even against all odds. If you had to distill the entire Bible down into just one call to action, what is it that God wants us to do without question? That call to action is to have faith. There is no doubt about it. To trust in the purpose and plans of this God. To depend on him. To rely on his power and his strength always, no matter what. In the book of Hebrews, the author recounts all of the people throughout the story of the Old Testament 
who helped this promise carry itself along and all of them and the way they responded in faith. In faith, in faith. In that chapter, he says this. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Church, the same is true today. This God is still worth our trust, and we can't possibly please him unless we do trust him. Even if Christianity falls out of favor entirely in our day and age, even if the Christians, half of them that we know and we used to walk with, no longer even believe in Christ anymore, they're done with that, they've moved on, even then, even if this pandemic does disrupt, disrupt our lives and our ministry for years and years to come, listen, the God of Abraham is still worth trusting. He will redeem his creation. He will get that grand vision. He will bless a new covenant people from all the families of the earth. And it's really important that we start here. That God is still worth trusting because unless we see that, we'll never understand this next point, which is this, number two, this God must still be followed. He can still be trusted, but he must still be followed. I think we're meant to read this and look back on this story and think, wow, what if Abram just didn't go? What if he just refused? There's supposed to be this sense, I think, of gravity. Wow, when God calls someone, it matters. It matters that we listen. It matters that we obey. What we do with our lives really matters. Even for all of eternity, it matters. Now, on one hand, we are going to see that this promise rests entirely on this God and God alone. The tagline of this series, the promise only God can keep. We're going to see that theme repeat over and over. There will be entire sections of this story in which Abraham does not obey God. We're going to see one of them next week. And so whether or not we obey will not determine in the end if God's promise comes true or not. That is absolutely true. He can accomplish this without us. He often accomplishes it in spite of us. And yet two things can be true at once. At the very same time, our obedience to this God does have important implications for his plan of redemption. And much like Abram's obedience, our obedience really matters. It matters more than we probably even think. It matters more than we may ever live to know. I want you to catch that. Just think about this. Abram never lived to see his descendants become a great nation. By the time he dies, there's basically a small extended family. And yet this entire nation through whom God has sent us Christ was raised up from the faith-filled obedience of this one man. This is why when your marriage gets really hard, it is worth obeying God and actually fighting for your marriage because your marriage is part of this promise. It's not just about you or your spouse. It is a reflection of the gospel. This is why, frankly, we need to actually love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We can't just cancel everybody and tell all of those people over there to kind of go away, if you will, because God is using us to bless all the families of the earth to his glory, and so we need to obey him and actually love our neighbors. Obedience comes much more naturally, I think, when we see our lives as an extension of this promise of God's. 
It comes much more naturally. The next time you're tempted to just give in and go your own way. Uh, The next time you are tempted to think, oh, it doesn't really matter if I obey God. Remember Abram. Remember that by getting up and going where God told him to go, God used this one man to set his entire plan of redemption in motion. It matters, church. It matters what we do and how we think about our money. It matters who we sleep with. It matters that we stay committed to one another as a local church. Our obedience matters because God has promised to use our obedience for his ultimate purposes. More importantly, as we look back on God's promise to Abraham through this series, as we reflect on the faithfulness of this God through the ages, my hope is that our hearts would just be stirred to obedience. Because even when his ways are far beyond us, even when our obedience feels like a burden, we are not the first of God's people to feel that way. In fact, church, we stand in a long line of people who have obeyed this God through all kinds of very difficult circumstances when it seemed like their obedience was totally hopeless and totally futile. And praise God they did. Praise God they did. Because the testimony of those brothers and sisters who have gone before us is all pointing in this one direction, that this God must still be followed today. Our obedience really matters. And finally, number three, this God is still worthy of all praise. He is still worthy of all praise. By the end of this passage, we can see uh, what was ultimately driving Abram's faith and what was ultimately driving his obedience. And ultimately, in the end, it was worship. Worship drove him. Paul says it this way, reflecting back on, on this in Romans 4. He says, in hope, Abram believed against hope. In other words, there wasn't much hope to hope in, and yet he hoped in that hope. He hoped against hope that he should become the father of many nations. It says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith when, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Church, if we want to rest in God's promise, if we want to joyfully obey him in all of life, then more than anything else, we need to call on his name. We need to stop whatever it is that we're doing. We need to stop our planning, stop our working, stop our worry, and we need to give glory to God, fully convinced that he can do what he has promised. In my own life, This is one reason, one of many reasons, that I'm incredibly grateful for my wife, Carrie. Um, As you heard earlier, we're in the process of adopting a little girl from India. In many ways, our passion for this adoption is the result of what we see here in Genesis chapter 12. We really believe that God wants to bless and bring his blessing and his redemption to all people. And we want our family to tell that story in a really tangible way way, uh, but like many journeys that sort of flow from God's promise, adoption is a long and complicated journey, uh, and there can be often a lot of twists and turns along the way. Uh, It's easy along the way to wonder, how is all this going to work? What if it all falls through? 
What if something goes terribly wrong? What if we're waiting for a particular girl, something happens to her while we're waiting to go get her, she gets hurt? It's tempting to think this way as if all of this whole process depends on us (laughs) and as if there is not a good and gracious God worthy of praise orchestrating every detail of it. But thankfully, it is often Carrie who thinks to stop and say, hey, let's pray. Let's set our minds and our hearts on the Lord. Let's call upon his name. I'm so grateful for that. Even in the last few weeks, we've seen God answer some very specific prayers in very specific ways. I just want to say what a shame it would be if we would walk through this entire process of God multiplying our family in in this way without calling on his name. So thank you for that. And we need, um, church, we need to keep these kinds of people in our lives. We need these kinds of people in our lives who can help us to see the praiseworthiness of God. If it's appropriate and possible uh, to marry them, that's a great idea as well. That works out, works out really well. Let's also be these kinds of people, right, who look back on the praiseworthiness of God throughout the ages so that when we look forward, we can see all the more clearly, yes, this God is still worthy of all praise. He still is, even today. When someone makes you a promise, it's pretty normal to just kind of stop a little bit and just consider all the variables, right? Does it seem like they can pull this off? Um, Have they led me astray in the past? Is there anyone else who could sort of vouch for their credibility here, right? This is how the thought process kind of goes. Church, in this case, the entire testimony of Scripture is bearing witness to the faithfulness of this God. In the person of Jesus Christ, he has come through on this promise. By the power of the gospel, he is blessing all the families of this earth. And church, in the end, he will show himself faithful to his covenant people. He can still be trusted. He must still be followed. But most importantly, he is still worthy of all praise. 